0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to season one of the Spacemakers podcast, celebrating the people behind some of our most beloved artists, directors, business minds, and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Kathy Pierre. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Like, you don't I- have to thank me; it's an inside job.
0: No, man, it's 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 really fantastic because I, you know, you have your dream list of people that you want to interview, and you were on it, and I was like, you might be busy. I don't.
1: first of all literally there's a the book that you gave sammy i i uh (laughs) i like myself is a classic in our family and every time we read it you sign it which people need to sign the books they give to people because otherwise you don't know where they came especially for kids because then you can tell a story about the person who signed it and your kid forms a relationship with that person even though they don't remember them so Uh you signed it so we talk about you whenever we read that book it has lasted three generations of bell daughters now so you know it's also as we good friends with with Melissa so this is I'm happy to do this
0: this is amazing
1: you knew me before all this was whatever this was and that is is.
0: yeah and that is a great segue because you know I've I've known you for years now but I don't think I really knew your journey to be quite honest and Mm -hmm. it's been fantastic kind of like stalking you
1: to be quite honest
0: (laughs) For the last little while, when you said yes, I was like, oh, I get to learn a little bit more about Wait,
1: you. who is this guy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why do I want to do this? <laughs> so um, how does it, this is not even a, a question I was thinking of asking, but I mean, author, podcaster, host, three <laughs> albums, stand-up comedian, Kamal. First of all, when did you have the time to do all of this? Secondly, how does it feel?
1: Oh, these are very... These are sort of intertwined. Um, so when did I find the time to do all this? I remember Chris Rock said, I heard him on an interview, I think it was on Bill Maher saying, if you wanna make more money, get married. If you wanna make more money than that, have a kid. If you wanna make more money than that, have a second kid. And what that really means is that your level of hustle starts to go up the more, the more people depend on you, or the more people you feel like depend on you. Uh, Melissa obviously can take care of herself. But the more you feel like, I should provide for my family. So, you know, I've I've been doing comedy since I started doing comedy in 1994 mm-hmm. and for a long time I was just sort of fumbling around like not didn't know what I wanted to do didn't trying to figure out how to say what I wanted to say also I don't, I don't think there, the industry wasn't really there wasn't a place for me like there is now like there's for comedians who I think feel the way I feel now. Uh, so by the time I met you, I'd started to go, okay, I think I know what I want to do now. So I feel like by the time that Melissa went to grad school, that our conversation, when she went to grad school, I was like, either I I was like, I was thinking about moving to New York, because I was like, I need to really kick this up another notch. And Melissa goes, I'm going to grad school in Southern California. We lived in the the Bay Area. I was in San Francisco. She was in Oakland. And so at that point, I was like, okay, we both can't leave. If I go to New York and you go to Southern California, that just felt like that's the end. Mm. So I'm just going to stay in San Francisco and dig in deep and try to, as I said to myself at the time, I'm going to b- try to become the king of San Francisco comedy, which was just my way of saying like, I want the city to know I'm here in a way they don't know now. Yeah. And so when I, so when Listen went to grad school and, and, and around the time that we met, I was really like in the process of like, making myself into more than i had been before like i started doing my own solo show renting theaters making posters paying for posters which pay writing press releases all sorts of stuff i'd never done before and those are skills that have translated to this day that i still sort of go that's i I was like my own professional boot camp uh yeah so and then you know me and Melissa got married in 2009 we have sam in 2011. And 2011 is when I first got my first TV show. Cause again, I think I was just like, I got to make stuff happen. Exactly. Like I got to like, And so, and not that I did it, you know, a lot of people helped, a lot of people helped and I had luck, uh, but as, as I always learned, luck is the residue of design. So um, yeah, so then it just became about like, you know, as me and my friend Jason would say, my best friend since high school, strike while the iron is lukewarm. So when there are <laughs> things like when you, success breeds more success. And so I, I'm always like, Sort of a little bit panicked that this is all going to go away. So I'm always trying to like take on new things that I think are worth my time that I also feel like can also help me provide for my family. So it's a lot.
0: Okay. So in that strive, like struggle and strife and trying to provide, when you did your first album, which is, I think, I don't know if people do that as much anymore. I mean, I know I have old albums from comedians that my parents loved back in the day. Mm -hmm when you did your first album and that and hit that milestone who helped you with that who was the who was the person or did you just do it on your own and like figure No it out?
1: no first of all nothing I just want to be very clear nothing happens on anybody's own <laughs> like you know
0: like, like podcast like, yeah.
1: so there's no there's no There's no as much as I can talk about the work that I did, but like there's there's any number of people that I can point to like with my one man show my friend Bruce Pakman who worked it was an independent theater producer, like set that up for me like he really like had already had the relationships and I learned from him how to do some bright press releases title make titles posters so yeah so but with the album. I mean that album came out of like. I had, this is dead technology. I had a mini disc recorder, which was the thing that before we had phones that recorded voice minnows, <laughs> I had a mini disc recorder. That was the thing every comic had for a while to record their sets. Cause they they were digital, they sounded good. Mm-hmm. And it was my first time ever headlining at the punchline. So if I'm gonna talk about the punchline, that was a, one of the clubs, two clubs in San Francisco that gave me a lot of stage time they treated me like I was a member of the family, mm. I, I made it formed a lot of still lifelong relationships out of that club, even though the club is closed now. And I haven't been there in years. Uh, but like, so that club became a place that I felt very comfortable. Molly Schmink was the booker still is the booker, um, and all the people who worked there. So I became comfortable enough that they were like, and good enough. They're like, we're gonna let you headline for a night at the punchline, which is a big deal. And, and you headline your home club, it's probably a Wednesday, they don't give you a good night the first time, but it was still. <laughs> and so, You know, this I invited all my friends and supporters and try sold it out and and really again you're sort of like trying to like I need to make more of myself and believe in myself and just put the main disc recorder on the stage next to me to document my first headlining gig. And after it was over, I was sort of listening to it, and a good friend of mine, Kevin Avery, who we also went through that same process of like, oh, we need to take this career more seriously. And now he's won multiple Emmys and is a writer producer in Hollywood. he was like this sounds like it could be an album like i think it was him saying that we were roommates at the time and i was like really and then i gave it to another friend matt morales who was also an addition to being a comedian was an audio engineer trained audio engineer and so he sat down and mixed it and pulled out every time i set my glass down on the table and it made a big noise and like and <sighs> and then it was like oh i need artwork so i went to my friend Lee Han, who was a graphic designer who had designed the bell curve posters and he and i had this pitch for him and he did and he put it together and then it's like oh i need to print up the cds i knew somebody who had cd so it's like none of that happened on my own it was just like the community of people i'd built around me were all happy to sort of like contribute and not even kevin didn't know he was telling me to release my album he was just like this sounds like he was like sort of just impressed with how good it sounded and now i mean so i basically bootlegged myself is what that is
0: That's why I started this podcast. I mean, you've named Bruce, you've named Kevin, you've named all these people. And I find in the industry now, because we're so focused on influencers and people coming out of nowhere, I'm like, no, just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to become successful. Oh yeah. People doing like favors for you left, right and center and whether that was editing for you Mm -hmm. or whatever. And and those are the stories that I'm sort of interested in. Um, And speaking of your, your bell curve show, Specifically, was that a punchline and the space makers for that? What, how did that come about?
1: No, because it was really, when I started, when I really conceived the idea of doing that show, oops, that was a lot of noise. Uh, it's, it's hard to control all the notifications. <laughs> that.
0: And they're important, especially. Yeah. They,
1: yeah. So, uh, yeah, so when I started, when I realized I wanted to do a one person show, which I had I had already been involved in the solo show scene in San Francisco through my friend Bruce. I'd actually, I'd actually taught, ta- like I, I directed his show because he was like, can you help me with this? And I ended up being a director through Bruce. He was like, set up classes for me to teach. Cause he was basically like, I can't pay you. Cause I don't have the money, but I can set up classes for you to teach and that will pay you. <laughs> so like, I was like, sure. That ended up going really well. So I, I was, that was like really how I made money for many, for several years. Uh, Stand up wasn't paying mm-hmm. as it wasn't paying a living wage. Mm-hmm. And then when I decided to do this solo show I knew that I couldn't do it in the club because I was like I want a projector I want a screen I want audio and video like I knew all I wanted all these things and you can't the punchline is not set up for that stuff for the most part it's really a it's a classic stand-up comedy club tiny stage you know just a microphone and a performer right (laughs) and so but luckily because of Bruce and because of the work I'd done with Bruce we had an in At this theater called the Shelton Theater, Matt Shelton, who's the owner operated the Shelton Theater. And so I'd done a lot of classes and a lot of things with Matt Shelton. And he just happened to have a show in that was that was renting his theater but didn't want Thursday nights, like they just did. And so he had Thursday nights available, which for anybody who's a performer, Thursday night is a great night to do something. It's like because as the as the comedian David Tell said, it's baby Friday. <laughs> like so it's Absolutely. like it's prime. It's, it's a night when people so mm-hmm. like mostly you don't get Thursday night when you're trying out a new thing. You get you get Sunday morning. You don't get Thursday <laughs> night. And so I had this great night, and I had this idea for a show. And also Matt Shelton allowed me to pay him out of the receipts. So I didn't have to come up with money off the top. I could pay him once I made my money which to me made me feel better about it because what if I don't make any like I don't so I don't have to come with the money up front so maybe I don't make any money but I don't have to pay that money until later like I don't have to figure but out until
0: later. Need the capital to start yeah.
1: so <laughs> that's but because I'd done things with him and had a long relationship with him so he just sort of we had built equity you know so uh and so we did it we did it the first time we did it it was sold out and then it was like we started doing it like every thursday and then it was like and then it, we started doing it once a week on thursdays it was first it was, it was four thursday it's for a month it was like once a month on thursday and then it was once a week on thursday and then eventually we moved to another theater and did it three times a week the climate theater which is no longer uh and that's where i sort of like picked up the like started doing three times a week and that's when it sort of like i started taking it to la and all sorts of other things but yeah it really started from like I knew Bruce. Bruce was a friend of mine. Matt Shelton had a theater. He he had a good night open. You know, without that, the show doesn't exist in the same way.
0: So Matt and Bruce are your spacemakers.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's funny among,
0: among many others, but they were, they were. Yeah, like Bruce yeah.
1: really. I think if we're gonna, Bruce really has was a consistent force. Matt's a great dude who owned a theater, who I had a good relationship with. You know, like so. I think it's like everybody doesn't have to be your best friend, <laughs> like you know, like yeah, so like like Bruce was like we were like in the we were in it together in the I would do stuff for him, he would do stuff for me. We would work on other people's thing. It was like we sort of had a little crew for a while, and then Matt, we because we were doing all this good stuff for Matt. And I don't. I'm not taking anything away from Matt. I just want to be clear that Matt was like a the, a, a a good theater owner, a nice business owner, which you don't always have in performance. But the, the people who own the spot are also nice people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He still opens the door, like that. Yeah, that, yeah,
1: yeah. Without yeah. that, we're just talking. We're just yammering.
0: Right. Um. So was full? Am I getting this right? Face full for floor.
1: Face uh, full of flour.
0: Face full of flour. There he is. I was like, nope, that's not it. Face full. Yeah. Of flour. Um, yeah. is that a turning point being recognized in, you know, best top 10 best comedy albums? Was that a, was that a, like, again? Album? it's,
1: it's about space makers. So yeah. I did my own album. A, a like, this was the early days of like sort of internet content. So we're talking about, you mm-hmm. know, the 2010s, <laughs> like the early 2010s, <laughs> uh, the late aughts early. So my first album came out, I think 2009 or something. Mm-hmm. And then 2011, there was a an early one of the early sort of con- there were all these like content companies that were coming into the bay area and they would all go we need comedians and so they'd find they would come to the punchline and they'd find they'd give us things to do or there's ways for us to make money write things for us and so there was always this sort of like new content company in town and this was rooftop they came to town but they actually made a big splash and actually made some good content and got a lot of comedians jobs and i started forming a relationship with them and they were like we want to sell your album on our website which i was like oh great so they wanted to sell my first album uh one nig only which was the name of it <laughs> it's, a, it's a visual joke doesn't work if you hear it uh one night only and uh and so they went they were like we want to sell your album on our website and i was like that's great but it was like two years old i was like but i'd i really would rather do a new album if we're gonna start selling if you if you think this is gonna sell and they were like, okay. So then I, they paid for the recording of that album and the distributing of that album. And that allowed me to record Face Full of Flower, which in a more professional way with like, you know, with an actual, not just a mini disc recorder, but they had microphones hang, hung throughout the room. And you moved up? I moved up, I moved right. up. All right. And, you know, also got to like, a friend of mine who took the cover art for that who was a, a a photographer i met named elizabeth allen at the time who i met on myspace which was <laughs> back in the day Ooh. yeah yeah this MySpace <laughs> era. in a in a in a in a chaste way let me be clear about that in a, <laughs> <laughs> MySpace was messy i we were we she was a fan of me and kevin kevin avery's po- uh uh we had a thing called cisco and negro movie review show uh so She so she took the picture so it's like you get so you get to give work to people who you who are who are just talented who are happy to do it but she you know and and so that became and that also that album really. I Obama had become President i'd worked on all this material during the solo show, so I had like my first real political takes on the world or on that album like my first sort of like the first album was race and race and maybe a teeny bit of politics, but this album was actually like here's my thoughts about the current political situation America's in. um. And so that sort of helped separate me from other black comedians and other comedians. And iTunes named it one of the top 10 albums of the year for comedy, which was so great. And at that point, it was like, I couldn't have imagined that was the thing that would have happened. That was back when iTunes was iTunes. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: couldn't find music on anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah there was Master, no other. But that's iTunes idea. was the only game in town. <laughs> Thankfully, they are not anymore. But yeah, that was back <laughs> when it, like, you know, I don't even know what. I I don't even know what they're doing with comedy albums now, but, you know, Mm -hmm. but anyway, so that it, like, it gave me a credit, which is important to have. And also all those credits let people in the positions of power know you're a real person. You know, I was just talking to somebody else about this, like, or Sarah Silverman. I was talking to Sarah Silverman about this on my other podcast. I said my other podcast, like I had several on my podcast, politically reactive. I've I've had several (laughs) on my podcast politically reactive about like, she always tells young comedians, don't go look for agents and managers just get good. And getting good means suddenly iTunes says you have one of the top ten albums. Suddenly I have like the San Francisco Chronicle saw the bell curve and said this nice thing, and mm-hmm. suddenly you have a little bit of a press kit, and then people in showbiz sort of think, oh, you must actually be something we should pay attention to. So that's sort of like that was one of those critical moments. So yeah, Faceful Flower happened through uh, Rooftop, uh, which is now I think a, a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. I think Amazon bought them, so they got the, they they got the they got the cash out, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that was where that came about, and then you know Elizabeth Allen who took the photos, and and you know I was really happy. The great thing about doing albums is you get to write down all the thank yous. So I was happy that I, you know, it's fun to sort of like make that list until you until you, I forgot my friend Jeremy, and he's like, "How'd you forget me?" <laughs> so, but, but Jeremy, anyway, Jeremy, we
0: haven't forgotten you. He's mentioning you on he,
1: he knows. We see him regularly <laughs> during our pandemic social distance play dates. But yeah, so yeah, so that was definitely what happened with Faithful. That was how Faithful of Flower came to be.
0: Wonderful.
1: Again, recorded at the Punchline because they at that point I was actually headlining the whole week instead of just one night. So it's like they start to see that I'm doing good work. They have more trust in me. So yeah, I got to headline the whole week for that one.
0: That's that's beautiful. And you get to try out the work a few different times, so it feels. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because the first one was just yeah. one one night headlining, and yeah. the second one I think it was two shows that we put together. Yeah.
0: Nice. So was prominent Negro your semi-prominent
1: Negro? Semi-prominent Negro. Yeah.
0: Was it your? Was that your "I have arrived" moment? Was that my what? I have arrived moment.
1: I mean, that was that was the 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 audio release from a, my Showtime comedy special. So that was definitely like every comedian wants a special. Yeah, I got a special on Showtime, uh, and that came through, uh, and it was directed by a guy who I had a lot of respect for, Morgan Spurlock, who's done Super Size Me and other things. And so, he, so I got to have, he directed it, he'd never directed a comedy special before, so it was sort of fun. Uh, Michelle Armour, who'd been a producer on The Chappelle Show, helped produce the special, uh, has always believed in me since the days of Totally Biased. And so, yeah, we got to fly to New York and go to this cool venue that nobody had ever recorded a special in before and record that special. And then out of that, we sort of, they, we turned the audio into the album, Semi-Prominent Negro, which is great because as much as everything right now is comedy special and, vi- and video, the album industry is not, is nowhere near what it used to be. I really like that idea of like, you can actually just listen to it. You don't have to, you don't have to watch it. You can actually just listen to it. Uh, So yeah, that was definitely like a big deal. And also that was after totally bias had been canceled. So it felt like this is a way to sort of like, I'm, I'm still, I still exist. I still get to, I still get to be in the industry.
0: So speaking of uh, totally bias. So when that got canceled, did you have that moment of like, Maybe this isn't it. Did you want to quit? What was it? What was the feeling around around that? Yeah,
1: I had that. Yes, I had that moment. <laughs> I, was, I, sort of, I was thinking okay. that moment and have you ever seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? For sure. Okay. I you know, you never know where these movies stop with generations, but uh <laughs> the line that goes through my mind is when Cameron goes to Egypt, land let my Cameron go. Like it's Cameron in bed, like just totally like wiped out by the, like all the expectations of life and how he can't meet them. That was my, that's how I feel about that post totally bias time. I was like, I may be, you know, I may be out of show business. I may be too stained by the failure of that show because it was a pretty public failure. It was a very public failure. Mm-hmm. I know black folks get their TV shows canceled and they're never heard from again. You know, it's just like, okay. it's yeah. just, so I thought this could be it. And you know, I, th- I think again, at the time, Melissa certainly was there for me, Sammy, my daughter was there. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, that's a time when it's helpful to have a family to sort of to look at you and realize you're not just what your career is. But, you know, we were living in New York in an apartment that was that the rent was for a guy who had a TV show, not for a guy who was unemployed. So we had to figure out what to do next. And then Melissa got pregnant with Juno and it just became like very clear to us. We had to move back to the Bay Area where we had a support system and a network and friendly faces.
0: So talk about Totally Bias. How, who was instrumental in in your Totally Bias failing forward moment?
1: I mean, I wouldn't have Totally Bias without Chris Rock. Chris Rock saw me do the bell curve in New York. Uh, I didn't know him. I knew people who knew him because the comedy industry is small, but he came, he snuck into the back. I didn't know he was there. And then afterwards he came backstage and you know, Chris Rock is one of my favorites of all time. So, you know, even though I knew famous comedians I was starstruck by Chris Rock and every, every comedian is starstruck by chris rock just because he's just he's an icon of that stature in our industry and in the comedy world and he came back and was like oh it was funny yeah it's good it's good you know i got I, I like i think eight people are funny you're one of the eight all right man see you later but then he called me and over time helped me get this sh- uh show on fx uh, called totally Bias, which now sounds very regular but at the time it was like a daily show style uh attack on the news show hosted yeah. by a black guy which now that was before the daily show was hosted by a black guy and before Samantha B and before John Oliver and Hassan Minhaj and sort of like that sort of the idea that there can be more than one person doing that show was not the case when I did it. So the thing about totally bias it was hard I always say it was like that the, that show ended like the end of a Vietnam war movie where everybody who survived just sort of went their own separate directions and like, didn't talk anymore. Like it was, cause uh, I had a lot of friends who I hired on the show and it's great to work with your friends, but it's not great to be your friend's boss. Hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of things that didn't survive that show. Luckily, some relationships got stronger. Hmm. Me and hurry who were on that show together still do politically reactive our podcast, and are still great friends. Um, and yeah, but it was like, you know, so I tried to like, bring my NBA posse with me. I tried to sort of Allen Iverson with it, bring all the, or, or LeBron James it bring the whole crew. Mm-hmm. And I should have, LeBron James did a better job than I did. Like, oh. so, like, so, which, uh, so, yeah, it was just sort of like, it was a lot. It was, it was on for about a year. It started out being once a week, which was sort of like getting our sea legs. Then they made it every, four days a week, which was just too much, too fast. Mm-hmm. And I had never been on TV regularly and I just didn't have the, the, you know, it's like, it's like, you can be a great natural basketball player, but you need to train to go to the Olympics. You know what you can? So, and mm-hmm. I think it was like that. Like I, maybe I had some natural skills that were good there, but I needed some training to get there that I didn't clearly have. You
0: did because you're now a five time Emmy award winner. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. No, so, that so, I've now so had a that lot of It was there. It was yeah, It was. Yeah, uh, I had the skills. I'm not trying to say that, but yeah. it definitely was like, like when I look at the shows that like, when you look at Samantha B, uh, John Oliver, Hassan Minhaj, all three of them went to daily show university. And so they got some real reps in how to do that before they went off and did their own thing. And I, I, like, I felt like if I had just been able to be an intern at the daily show for a summer, I would have picked up something, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, so it's like, it is, it is a, it is a, uh, yeah, it was, and you know, I, I'm not complaining about the opportunity, but I certainly look back and go, here's how I would have wished it had gone differently, which also lets, gives me, puts me in a better position to mentor other people about like, make sure you, you get your reps in, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I never asked you if you were part of the executive uh, production team with Totally Bias, but I know you are um, on the production team of... of uh,
1: Okay. United Shades of America. Shades
0: of America. So, in that respect, one did that happen right away. Mm-hmm. Tell me the journey on on this one, because mm-hmm. that is what you're doing on the show is incredible. Um, you're having very tough conversations, which is which is it, the respect that I have for what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say and what you're trying to teach is bar none. So, how did that come about? Was it your idea? whose idea was it, mm-hmm. who helped Who helped open those doors or gave you a hammer and like, you know, broke that glass ceiling for you in terms of executive production so you have control over your content?
1: Well, first of all, to be clear, the only reason I think I'm an executive producer, I was an executive producer from the beginning by title on the United Shades of America. And I only think that happened because I'd been an executive producer on Totally Bias because Chris Rock made me an executive producer. Like he, he had the power to decide yes or no on that. And he decided yes, because I think he, I know he understands how important it is to have executive level input into these things that I wasn't just talent, that they were sort of betting on me and to give me more voice in the room and to give me a louder voice in the room, I need to be an executive producer. So when I got to United Shades, I was the executive producer from the top, which is a big deal. It doesn't mean that every other executive producer listens to you though. Ah. You're a black guy who they feel like is new still, even though he had a TV show. So the first year of the first season of that, and I've talked about this before, was really a struggle for a couple reasons. One, I didn't feel like I was being taken that seriously by the by the other by the by the other exec who was in charge. Two, uh, I was the only black person who worked on the show in any sort of lead role. So we're doing a show about, and I was also the only person of color who worked on the show in any lead role, like you know. So. We're doing this show about inclusion and, and celebrating diversity and i would sometimes be out in the field with a question and i don't have anybody to talk to but google you know what i mean because it's like you all don't know you don't have the input on this the way that i need you to have it like so we're doing a show about the clan and then i'm hanging out with a bunch of white guys who i just met who are the crew of the show and i need to talk to some black people <laughs> like i need to be able to sort of like right. and so over the course of the shows we're filming our sixth season right now Over the course of the last few years every season i you know it's like you accrue more power you get more respect also winning emmys helps because people take you more seriously we've done a good job for cnn uh so yeah so it's like you know it's still there's still struggles because it's still it's making art in a commercial environment which is not easy i think of the show as art but it also it has to be 42 minutes long because it's a commercial environment so it can't be 43 minutes long it can't be 41 minute long like it's gotta be so every episode has to be and and it has to have commercial breaks so but also that means that more people see it than if i was just making it on my computer uh because i I don't have the skills to make it as good as this so yeah so when the show was brought to me it was already had been sold to cnn as for a pilot it was called black man white america right and yeah and it was just supposed to be a lot of black comedian traveling to white spaces and i still don't know how i think the all the sort of tumult of totally bias made me go. I cannot step into another thing that I feel like isn't right, even though I need this job. Mm. So I was like, I was like, I wouldn't do that. I was just very like, I wouldn't do that. Like, I mean, it's like I'm just gonna be a black man talking to white people every week. Like, I, I was like, I live in the Bay Area. They will not let me leave my house if they're like, oh, white people are what's important. We got to learn about white people. And so I said, no, I would only do it if it was more more than just white people and at the time cnn's slogan it may still be was called go there and i was like i would only do it if it was lots of different types of people and it was called don't go there and so that made them laugh although they weren't going to name a show don't go there but like so <laughs> but like and then the producer uh jimmy fox who was the who is the head executive on the show who's not the producer i'm talking about he jimmy was is was is great uh at that point somebody on his side changed the show to united shades of america And uh, that became the like, and that even that title made it sound better than Black Man White America or even Don't Go There. It's like it sounds like something that you want to watch, as opposed to something that you're being dared to watch. Yeah,
0: and it sounds inclusive.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds inclusive. Like, and I don't. Yeah, and I don't even know. I still don't know who came up with the title. Maybe it was Jimmy, but yeah, it just sounds on brand for an America we didn't even know we wanted necessarily at that point. Mm -hmm. But now every day it's like, yeah, we need to figure out how to do this.
0: Exactly. So they pitched it to you. Mm -hmm. So, who was that person that said, "Hey, we have a show for you"?
1: Well, it was Jimmy pitched it to Jimmy Fox. Pitched it to CNN. CNN was like, "Do you have a black comedian in mind?" I think Jimmy did not. I think, from what I understand, Amy Intellis, who was my boss at CNN, who's the who's a VP of Vice President of I don't even know what her title is. She's she's right under Jeff Zucker. Jeff's the main CNN. CNN, but Amy is great. She's been in, huh?
0: This is a pretty
1: important lady. Yo, she's super important. There's no question. Yeah. <laughs> Amy is like Amy's been in in broadcast news like for over 30 years. She is a real G. Like she is like Amy is not she will she will she will cut you with the word or lift you up with the word and I appreciate her clearness, her clarity. I never I'm always and also she's very she's been very she's been very good for, to work with. In a way, it's great to be at a time when like the industry was falling around around uh, like about time's up and there's not enough powerful women. I, at CNN, I was like surrounded by powerful women and I was just like, well, aren't I lucky? <laughs> you know? So like uh, Heather Brown, who's a publicist at CNN, who's also a black woman has been like, basically like my lead blocker and like Heather will not put me out there for some publicity that's bullshit. She gets me from very early on. We had a conversation cause I did some, she I was doing some some press and it was like, it was with a black outlet that was like, basically didn't think I was black enough was how it came across. And I said to Heather, look, I, I know we just met, but I just have to be honest, I'm kind of what a lot of black people think is corny. So like if, so we just have to be careful about where I go and what to expect. And she's like, I get you. And she and so from that point forward, we've been in, in, in unison. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, so uh, Amy, apparently Amy or someone at CNN said, well, what about this guy, Kamal Bell, who was on Totally Bias? Cause he's a black guy who talks about politics. Uh, because they, they basically CNN was like, We need somebody who actually knows how to talk about politics if they're going to be on our network and knows. And so, <laughs> I wrote about this in my book. So, CNN came up with me, Jim. Uh, Jimmy Fox said, Sure. Then I had a meeting at CNN when they were, still th- they were still thinking about it, where I actually met with Jeff Zucker, who Jeff Zucker is a legendary show business figure. He is, uh, there's two books about the late night comedy wars where, like, basically the whole Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno thing. Jeff was the exec who was like moving Conan here and Jalen over here. And so he is he's well known. Puppet but master. He, huh? he's puppet he's yeah, yeah, he's the puppet master. Jeff is definitely a puppet master. <laughs> and so I had a meeting with him, and the, in the meeting he's like, So you know you pay attention to current events in politics? And I go, Yeah. And he goes, Okay. And he goes, Here's a test. And he started quizzing me on current events. <laughs> Which Wait, is just,
0: you got it
1: right. <laughs> I, well, the funny—I mean, the funny thing was—it was like it was basically—I mean, just like you know—I have the see I think I already had the CNN app on my phone because it was just a news app or something. But it was all things that like were on the CNN app, and I was like, yeah, I just read those like ten minutes ago. <laughs> like so, it's just like you know, it was all the current events of the day, and also some things that are so big at the time, like like if you lived in New York, you could not know about the the uh, Bridgegate and Christie, like things that were just like, well, of course, you know, right. Uh but yeah, I passed the news quiz and uh and, <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's you know I'm laughing, but like I think if I hadn't passed it, Jeff would have thought differently about me. So, you know, so sometimes you gotta pass the test, even if it feels funny. Uh but yeah, so Jeff, Amy, but Amy and Tellus has been with me, A woman named Lizzie Fox, who is now at HBO Max, but like really was the person I could call at any point and really confided in from early on about how I wasn't happy with the direction of the show. And and Lizzie was influ- It was ins- Was like, uh, was. The word I'm looking for, not inspirational. Uh, she was key. I'll just say that Lizzie was key to the show moving from one production company to 0.0, which is where the show's at now, which is the production company that made all of Anthony Bourdain's shows. So, in last season, was the
0: instrumental first. and she influenced. Yeah, it. yeah
1: she was ins- instrumental. Yeah. I talked to her. She was talking to them. Bourdain had passed away. So there was this sort of like, they were looking for a new project. I was like, I'm not happy with this production company. She, it was very clear to everyone how much love I had for Bourdain. So she's the one who sort of connected those pieces. And so, yeah, so I got a shout out to Lizzie Fox who she mm. she got promoted, which makes me angry to this day because <laughs> she was so good. <laughs> <laughs> she was so good. She was too good.
0: Right. So I have uh, some fun, crazy questions for you. that are less, well, they're still career oriented, but. So one is, um, what was your best bad decision?
1: Best bad decision? Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, so many bad decisions. <laughs> Around my career?
0: Around your career. Yeah, keep, keep it in, in that vein.
1: I think not moving to LA or New York was clearly a bad, like you, it wouldn't have made sense at the time like there was no industry in San Francisco. How are you going to make it out of how do you going to make it out of San Francisco? Mm-hmm. And I was just like I just don't want to I was just like I felt like I need to stay here. And at the time, you nobody would have said that I was making a good decision. Cuz there was no such thing as becoming known in San Francisco at that point. There's or no point to it. Why would you become known here?
0: Right.
1: So that was a great, I, like that was a decision that I feel like feels very Kamau. Like I, only I would make that decision like fame and fortune are over there, I'm gonna stay here. And so like, <laughs> I think that that was a, that not moving when Melissa got to grad school because it was scary. I'm not saying it wasn't scary but it was a great bad decision. Okay.
0: Um, what's your significant fork in the
1: road? Significant fork in the road. After Tolly buys getting canceled and going, well, now that I'm in New York, I should stay in New York because this is where fame and fortune is. Mm-hmm. Or we can go back to the Bay Area. So me and Melissa had to talk about that a lot because I was like, if I go back to the Bay Area, I could just fall off the face of the Earth again in show business because there's there's no I can't get bigger in San Francisco again. I can't make a living as a comedian in San Francisco. Uh, I'm gonna have to be traveling a lot. So if we do, whatever we do to go back, I'm gonna be on the road a lot because because that's where the all the opportunity and the money is. So. That was a real big, like it felt that felt like it was probably a bad decision, but we didn't have a choice. It felt like we needed to be with our friends and family and be in a familiar place after the two years of New York with totally biased. So that felt like this could be a real bad decision. (laughs) Like this could be, I could be basically admitting defeat right here.
0: Okay. Um, Do you have a Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay, Anna Wintour moment? Tough love mentor that just, is always in your corner in a weird off kilter way because they just ride you with criticism constantly. I mean, it's
1: the, I, Chris Rock is that person. Like I don't talk to him that often cause we sort of, we only formed a professional relationship. I mean, he's definitely somebody I can reach out to. And I was lucky enough to, he agreed to let me direct a documentary about his big comedy special, Bring the Pain, that, that uh, one of my proud career achievements. <laughs> uh, that nobody saw cuz it was on Annie and they were just advertising that police show that they have <laughs> but uh, but uh, but its on Amazon Prime but so Chris w- w- is not does not suffer fools gladly is not going to sort of like hold your feelings in the light <laughs> it's, it's like he's going he's going to tell you what he feels and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that he's always correct but it means you're going to know how he feels so totally biased was a lot of time of him being very clear with me about what he felt like I could improve, and I'm just you know, so it was hard because I was also like, I don't even know what I'm doing, and he's like, yeah, it's clear, uh, but he also like, if he doesn't open that door, I don't think I, I don't, my career, he's always very clear about like you would have made it somehow because you have talent, but I just know that there's like, I don't, I wouldn't be where I'm at now, and I would be somewhere else, maybe I'd be fine, but like, he opened that door, so I always have to sort of like remember. It, it You know, once you get through that door, it's not always fun. You want to sort of celebrate getting through the door, but then the work begins. So yeah, Chris is somebody who, if I call him right now, he will answer, he'll ask me what I'm doing, and he'll tell me what he thinks about it. <laughs> like, yeah, so, which is, you need those. which is great to
0: have. You need yeah. those,
1: you need those. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Definitely. Is there anybody that taught you about betrayal in the industry?
1: Betrayal in the industry? I I I, I am... Well, I'm, I, there's like, sometimes you feel like I'm in rarefied air to be able to regularly be in the room when Dave Chappelle came back from South Africa and hear him talk about what he had gone through with Comedy Central. Like people are talking about that thing he just said recently about Comedy Central. I used to go hang out at those shows because he would, he loves the Punchline Comedy Club. So he would come there and do like two weeks in a row of shows, three weeks in a row of shows. And because I was at that point, in at the punchline, I could just go. Like I could, I, sometimes I was opening for him, but if I wasn't, they would just, I would just walk through. They'd be like, no comedians can come in for this show, it's too packed. Hey, come out, go on in. No comedians can come in. <laughs> like, so like I had like earned my my spot. Uh, so to be in the room and hear him talk about how he felt like the industry, Comedy Central had done him wrong, uh, how he thought the industry was hard was hard on black folks, how he thought how he sort of built this web of like look at what they did to mariah carey martin lawrence like to be in the room as he's thinking about that was really like you know i'll never forget it and it was some of the best stand-up i'd ever seen and so like yeah like that was that was rarefied air that's like people who like i saw Jimi hendrix when he first got to england you know what i mean it's just like some like some really like nobody's ever i think he recorded all those things i don't know if he'll ever use them but also the context will be different because to be to know that every comedy fan in the country wanted to know what Dave Chappelle thought and I was in that room regularly it was definitely and to hear him talk about the industry was really I'll never forget that.
0: You don't have to name names but have you ever been betrayed this far?
1: You- oh yeah. I mean, yeah, you showbiz is I was it's founded by reprobates, pirates and criminals. Like it's just not
0: but We love it, people. But we love
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like lo- no, we lo- love it but it's just like it, it's why there's all that scandal in show business because it's founded by scandalous people and it's founded by dreamers who want to live a life unlike regular folks so they just sort of like that means that there's a lot of shit that goes down that is like this this wouldn't pass hr at a at a at, a, at any other company so it's like i'm yeah this this business is like filled with like you have to sort of you have to sort of as they say like as there, there's that the si- My mom had this sign in our house when I was a kid, she still has it in her house, in her apartment, but it was like about slave catchers in Boston, like bo- like free black folks, black folks who would escape slavery and go to Boston, you can't get, there's not much more north in America than Boston, so you're out of the south, and yet slave catchers would go to Boston and look for black, fo- look for freed escaped slaves or black folks who just look like they should be a slave, and they and it said keep your top eye open that was what it says keep your top eye open be aware of the slave catchers and i always remember like it's like you have to keep your top eye open because everybody sort of like gets into this business for their ego is a big part of this business it, it would have to be and everybody is sort of like looking out for themselves which also makes sense but you want to put people on your, you want to be surrounding yourself with people who you have similar goals so that like they can look out for themselves and you can look out for yourself a part of looking out for yourself is looking out for them so i think yeah certainly you know like there's any number of like the first thing you learn as a comedian is that you know you can't really trust the club owner you can't trust the booker they're going to tell you they're going to book you they don't book you they're going to tell you getting paid this much money they don't pay you that much money like the whole thing is sort of like managing bet- managing your own feelings around getting ripped off or betrayed and so yeah it's so yeah so definitely I mean I feel betrayed by the first producer on uh United Shades like and and I've written about it I don't say his name just because. It is easy to find his name if you want to, but I'm not I'm I just don't I'm not trying to I'm not trying I'm not a rapper. I'm not battle rapping him. Like so like I'm just like it's so you can go find it if you want to look it up, but it's not my I think it's important to know that the system failed on that point and the system is failing lots of people. It ain't just that one person.
0: I respect that. I respect that. No, and it's important for people to 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 be aware and to go in, you know, eyes open and ready. Yeah. To confront
1: whatever as they say it's called show business not show fun <laughs> <Like
0: it's, laughs> right? so Absolutely. it is
1: not yeah you have to sort of like the you you go in for the fun but if you're gonna stay in it you have to really know the business
0: hundred percent hundred percent so um, this may seem like a weird question do you, what's your totem so it's a symbol it's it's a it's part of the Native American culture which I'm sure mm-hmm. you're aware of and it's it's a spirit being it's a sacred symbol uh something that represents your tribe or your ancestry do you have one and if you do what
1: is it uh let's see i i will say this i don't know if it's my totem but it's been with me this 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 being has been with me my whole life not this particular version of it it's actually sitting right here okay uh so but so in some sense i feel like and also it's Juno who the middle kid, the, the six year old identifies this with me. So this is the Hulk. Uh, the Hulk comes often comes with me on the road because Juno wants me to take him with me because she's like, this is your Hulk. As a kid, I used to watch the Hulk TV show and like pl- pretend to be the Hulk. And so it's sort of funny to me like it's, I think it's actually maybe even more important to Juno than it is to me, but as I sit here, it's sitting here on my desk I think I don't know if I put it here or Juno put it here, but like this is the first, like so sort of the the thing about the Hulk that I've always connected to, is there's the sort of the dual nature of the person who is trying to control themselves and be a good person and gets pushed too hard and then has to hulk out and like if you wouldn't respect me then i'm gonna make you respect me <laughs> this is what the so, and every black person uh latinx person indigenous person uh asian person asian diaspora person pacific islander knows that feeling of like i tried to be reasonable with you fools <laughs> so <now it's, laughs> and you didn't respect it so i'm gonna have to hulk out so yes i would say that like the Hulk has followed me throughout my life. Oh, the
0: Hulk is your totem, absolutely. Um, and just one more, more uh, uh, personal question: Who are you making space for now?
1: Uh, I mean, this is 2020. Has been a lot, as we all <laughs> say. This this <laughs> pandemic is not, and the pan, and 2020 is going to have a sequel in 2021. It ain't like 2021 is a reset button. So, you know, uh, I I. I'm trying to make as much. I, I'm trying not to drive myself crazy, uh, and that's I'm not doing a great job of it. But like before we recorded this, like I was recording another. I was recording my podcast, Politically Reactive, and Sammy, who you know, was at the door, knocking on the door and singing the song from Frozen, uh, "Do You Want to Build a Snowman," <laughs> which, which is literally a song about a sister who can't connect to her family member because that family member is locked in a room as heard I'm locked in a room working while she wants to connect with me. So in the middle of the podcast, I said, hold on a second. I just went out there just to, just to be like, I hear you. I'm, I'm right. I'll be out in a little bit. Uh, you know, so I do not want her just to be, she, she sang like, I think she sang the song through twice. So I think it's important to even in the midst of all this pressure to get work done, to make sure that there's like, that I'm doing, that it's, it's, I have to remind myself to do things from, to be available to my family, even if it's interrupting in my important work,
0: you know? Absolutely, Absolutely. making space for them.
1: That's, yeah.
0: I love it. So where can people connect with you? Cause you have a thousand, what's the best handle? What's the best place to connect with W?
1: If you. I'd say Twitter. If you really, I'll probably read it. If you, if you say something on Twitter, if it passes the quality control filter, whatever that is on Twitter. So that means if you come through with a lot of MFers and N-bombs, then I may not get to me. But uh, if you just want to send me messages, I, I, I pay attention. I like the things that I read. So if I liked it, that means I read it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I liked it. It just means I got it. I see it. But, uh, yeah, I'd say at W Kamau Bell on Twitter, and I, I go through periods on Instagram where I'm active, so I will engage with people on those platforms. I I there's a MySpace, fa- uh, not MySpace. There's a, there's a oh, there Facebook
0: was fa- there
1: was a MySpace. <laughs> I'm not there's a Facebook fan page that I'm involved with, but I am not on Facebook anymore because I don't enjoy Russians and misinformation and Mark Zuckerberg. But uh, but uh, I know he owns Instagram, but it's different somehow. But yeah, so it's like I would say uh, at W Kamau Bell on Twitter and Instagram are the two best places.
0: Okay. It's your two your two fates. I, yeah. I respect that. I respect that. Sir, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate it. Um, this is uh more than I could
1: ever ask for. So uh, no, it's I'm happy to do it. It's like you said, it's an inside job. <laughs> we, 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 we go back. So and you know, and, you
0: know I'm hoping that it, it inspires people because I truly believe it takes a village and and you've got a lot of people in your corner and a lot of mm-hmm. people and it's taken you. As like Billy Porter says, like thirty years to, to get to this place, like where he's he, he at, it, it it doesn't happen overnight. And I think a lot of people feel like it should.
1: Mm-hmm. Important. For and you know, it's the what is it? It's getting to the top is one thing; staying there is another. Like yeah. that's when the real hard work begins. Not that this is even the top, but just the once you get your spot, other people want your spot. <laughs> like so, you gotta like you know, right. and you gotta keep reinventing your spot and making yourself more relevant in that spot
0: well author host podcaster i mean the list goes on you definitely you have a few spots on top there sir and it's, <laughs> it's incredible
1: well thank you very much thanks good it's good to see you good
0: to see you <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to Spacemakers and thank you to my guest w kamal bell and remember there is no such thing as self-made no matter the story, there is always that one integral character who leverage their success, luck, confidence, and positivity to create opportunities for folks coming up in their shadow. We call these special souls the Spacemakers. I'm your host.